I'm Jesse Lubinsky. I'm Donnie Piercy. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Heil, hosts of the Partial Credit Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another great episode of My EdTech Life. Thank you so much for joining us on this wonderful Tuesday evening, or it may be well into Wednesday, depending on where it is that you're joining us around the world. But wherever you're joining us from, thank you, as always, for all of your support. We appreciate all the likes, the shares, the follows. Thank you so much. To all our new YouTube subscribers, as you know, we're trying to get to a thousand subscribers on YouTube, but thank you all for helping out with that. And again, like I mentioned, we do what we do for you. Thank you for your support. We love to bring you some great conversations and great views week in and week out. And today I'm excited to welcome a very well-known guest uh, to me personally that I've known for a while, but now he is a guest of the podcast. And I'm really excited to welcome tonight, Mr. Todd McFarland. Mr. Todd McFarland, how are you this evening? I'm doing great, Fonz. It's great to be here and I appreciate uh, Very excited to be on the show. Excellent. Well, I'm excited again, Todd. It's a, I know it's been a couple of years since the last time that we, well, you know, talked and that we connected. You know, I know that you and your family have moved and, you know, it, you, we kind of lost touch, but it's great that you were able to, we were able to connect through the power of LinkedIn. And uh, thank you so much again for reaching out also and uh, your interest in being part of the show and joining the conversations that we have centered around education, but hopefully as always inspiring in all realms, you know, whether you're a student, whether you're an industry, whether you're an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, solopreneur, whateverpreneur, but thank you so much for being here this evening. So let's go ahead and dive into our conversation. So Todd, I always love to start with this first part, which is that superhero origin story. And this is a great way for our audience members to get to connect with you and know a little bit more about your background. So Todd, can you tell us a little bit about your journey coming up from school and leading up into your current role? Sure. So. I was, uh, I grew up in a small town, uh, just north of Dayton, Ohio. I, um, went off to university. I uh, went to Duke university and got a degree in, in mechanical engineering and then went straight into industry, which is where I've been working for, for 30 years. I've spent the last 20 years, uh, in medical devices, working on mostly product development, getting new medical devices to to market and somewhere in there, um, and I'm, I'll say it out loud after five attempts, did get a master's degree. And there were a whole lot of reasons why the first four didn't work out mostly for family, personal reasons, couldn't make the schedules work, but, uh, did get my master's degree when I was in my forties, uh, in mathematics. And I'm now chief product officer for a medical device startup. that's uh, based in Durham, North Carolina. Excellent. Well, that's great. And thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your background. And of course, Congratulations also as well on your master's. I know that that can't be easy, of course, fixing those schedules. And uh, I know that you did travel a lot. And of course, you you did move from place to place because of, of jobs. But again, 40 years old, don't worry about it, my friend. I, I'm there too. And we're still learning and we're still working. But that's wonderful uh, to know. 
So Todd, tell me a little bit more, just, uh, you know, I know we hit your, your little, your background shortly and just a, in a little scope of, you know, just a little picture of, um, you know, what you've gone through, but, you know, being that we are here on my EdTech Life and, you know, talking a little bit about education and obviously wanting to know how we can connect our education world into industry and things that you, like, for example, are currently working with, which is engineering and working in the medical field and so on. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that as far as now with the experience that you have, what would you say, you know, maybe of our students today uh, need to really pay attention to and really need to kind of focus on so they can go ahead and follow maybe a similar path into, uh, of course, into the education realm as far as university, but even beyond university. What were some of the things that you went through that you found were like, man, this is definitely some great advice for anybody? Yeah, if there were, if there were two things that I could offer any student in any discipline, it applies to engineering, but I think it applies to any discipline. One is to don't stop learning when you get out of school, right? That's, that's when your education really begins is when you really start to see how what you learned in school applies to the work you eventually want to do. So being a lifelong learner, it's one of the questions that in fact, I almost always ask when I'm interviewing people is what's the last book you read? Because if you, if someone tells you what the last book they read is, it tells you something about them. Um, and you get those awkward pauses by, from the people that can't remember the last time they read a book. Um, the second piece of advice, and this is the one I think is, is so key. And I, I think is, is what allowed me to, to achieve whatever success I had academically is learn fewer things. And I know that sounds contradictory, but I think that is really what will make students successful is learn less, but learn it deeply. And, and let me give you a, an example. Maybe that'll, that'll bring this home a little bit. So remember, let's go back to like algebra one. Remember the foil method? Remember first, outer, inner, last? Well, all that is, is the distributive property of multiplication over addition applied two times, right? So if you understand distribution or multiplication over addition, you don't need to memorize FOIL, right? You can memorize it if you want, but it's really irrelevant. So if you learn something deeply and you understand it and you can apply it to new situations, it, it becomes much more powerful. And to take that example even further, if instead of applying the distributive principle only twice, you apply it n times, you end up with the binomial theorem. Right? So I think it just shows that if you learn less things, it, it opens up a whole nother realm of applications because you're able to adapt something that you truly understand. And you also start to see interconnections between disciplines. Uh, let me give you an example. So think about, let's talk about some phenomena. So heat transfer, current through a electrical circuit that has a resistor and a capacitor, free falling objects, radioactive decay, all of those phenomena are governed by the same mathematical equation. 
they're, they're first order linear differential equations. So if you understand how one of them behaves and you understand it deeply, then you can look at any of those systems to say, I know what that's going to look like. I know what it's going to do. It's going to be an exponential decay function and it's going to approach a limit based upon, you know, starting from initial conditions, it's going to approach some limit. They're all going to behave exactly the same way. And that's, that's one of the reasons I think that I studied mathematics for my master's is I learned that if I can reduce a system or if I can have somebody who knows the subject reduce a system to the equations, whether it's a chemical equation, a chemical system, a mechanical system, or electrical system, then I can understand how it's going to behave. Even if I don't understand the subject, I know what the system is going to do. So I, again, I know that sounds contradictory, but I can give you example after example of where learning less things makes things easier. Actually, I'll give you a, one more example and then we can, we can move on. So this was freshman year in college. I think it was our spring semester. And all the students were standing outside the physics classroom waiting for the previous class to finish so we could go in and take our first test. And this was introductory physics. It was a lot of the same stuff that you cover in high school, you know, projectile motion and that sort of stuff. And one of the students standing there next to me was flipping back and forth through his book, doing his last minute studying. And he asked me, well, do you know the equation for a projectile launched at velocity V at angle theta to determine how far it goes? And I, I looked at him and said, no, I have no idea. I said, I didn't memorize that. And he just looked at me like, well, how could you, that's going to be on the test. Well, yeah, but I know Newton's laws of motion. I know how the force of gravity on earth behaves near the surface. I know that acceleration is the derivative of velocity. Velocity is the derivative of position. And from those four things, I can derive that equation in, in 30 seconds or so, and, and a bunch of others just like it. So it turns out that that question was on the test, except that instead of launching it on flat ground, you were launching this projectile off a cliff so that the vertical position of where you start and the vertical position of where you end are not the same. Guess what? The equation you memorized doesn't work. You have to re-derive another one, right? So I think in, in many ways, learning less things, but doing the mental work necessary to understand them at a fundamental level makes things a lot easier. And my head can't hold that many things anyway. So I'd much rather learn fewer things. It, it requires more investment up front. It's certainly a shortcut in the, sh in the, in the short game to just memorize the equation and move on. And then when you get that problem, you, you just bring that equation back and you plug in the numbers and you send it off. But in the, in the long run, you end up having to memorize a whole lot more things. And I think you're, you're prone to misapplying what you've learned and not being able to handle new situations. Excellent. You know, and a lot of the things that you're saying absolutely make sense. And I mean, just that statement is bold, but even right now you've got me reflecting and thinking about myself and even in my personal practice, I mean, coming from, uh, marketing and sales and then coming into education. And then now can I consider myself a lifelong learner in the sense that continually learning, I'm continually on social media and so on. But then at the same time, Todd, I find myself that I want to have all my fingers and toes and everything, but, and then that makes me, makes it feel very overwhelming where if I were to focus, I think a little bit more on what it is that I'm 
yeah, I guess not necessarily, mo- well, most passionate about and, and in doing, then I can definitely, you know, continue to grow mm-hmm. more. So what you are saying makes really good sense. And it does take somebody even like myself just to kind of sit back and, and reflect on those things. Because like you said, just do less, but do it well, but do it deep and becoming that expert and putting in that time. And I guess it's just, I, I don't know if it's after, because of social media, also just the fact that a lot of people are doing some great things and putting things out there that it's almost like that fear of missing out. And you also want to do a little mm-hmm. bit of that. And which is kind of interesting because sometimes, you know, one of the things is I always tell teachers like, hey, we need to slow down. You know, we need to just keep it simple and streamlined when I'm sharing platforms with them and then just doing, taking it and tackling it in bite size just to make them feel comfortable. But yet as part of my job too, is also to be on the lookout for anything else that is out there and what else might be useful. So it's finding that balance. And I think that's really great advice, finding that balance. And oftentimes, you know, even right now as, as adults, you know, you and I here, you know, it's thinking about that. And I'm like, oh, yikes, that's some really great advice. And I really do appreciate that viewpoint because Again, like I said, it definitely has me reflecting on those things. So talking a little bit more about that and, and that, that advice that you have and, you know, that has, again, giving you the opportunity to be where you want to be. I want to ask you, Todd, what have been maybe some of the barriers that you have seen that you've had to overcome throughout the learning process, be it, you know, K-12 or maybe uh, even at university or higher ed? and what helped you overcome some of those barriers? I think, as I said, well, first let me, let me comment on one thing you said, and then I'll, I'll answer that question. I, I think you said the key word, which was balance, right? I think that's, that's the balance. And you obviously, some things you want to learn. I mean, theoretically, and I'm going to stay on the subject of math just because that's what I know best, but theoretically you could say, well, I'm only going to memorize the fundamental axioms of mathematics, but because from that I can derive everything else, right? And that that approach, you know, obviously, there's some point where it doesn't make sense because you're you're not going to have time to go from the fundamental theorems of math to differential calculus on a test, right? So I, I think you have to find what's the right balance of where do I learn, which things are fundamental, and which things are incidental. Right. And that's the separation you have to make between, between, um, you know, the facts as they're being presented to you is which are the important ones to know. And I'm going to spend my time on those. I really focus on them and which ones are just examples of that. And I can kind of forget about those and just know that they're there. Uh, there was one other point I was going to make, but, um, well, I can't remember what it was, but to answer your question in terms of, of barriers, I think it was that it be learning something deeply is hard. You have to be willing to do the mental work. And, and, you know, there, I'm no different than anybody else. There were times where a concept, I got stuck. Um, I remember one, um, at university and it was a Fourier transforms and we were making the, the leap from Fourier series to Fourier transforms, going from series to integrals. I, for some reason, I couldn't get my head around the concept and I was really trying to understand it. And I remember. And this is something I've learned that's worked for me over and over again is just put it down and walk away. And, and what I would typically do is I would, what I would typically do is I would go for a run 
or go play a game of basketball or go to something physical, just move. And on this particular day, I went down to the track and I, I wasn't really a runner, but I just took a run around the track. And while I was running, it came to me and I got it. And I, I found that works over and over, um, just putting it out of your mind for a while and letting your subconscious, there's something that happens in there in your subconscious that it'll chew on something even when you're sleeping and you'll wake up or you'll finish your game of basketball with a level of clarity. So, ah, now I get it. Right. And I think that's, that's the way I handled when I was trying to learn something that for the moment was escaping me is I would just put it aside and maybe come back to it the next day, switch to a different subject, work on that, and then come back and see if it made any sense. And there were times where I had to do that multiple times. You know, I'd come back to it. Nope, still don't get it. Play with it a little bit, push it. And I, but that's really where the learning occurs. And I think that's why, I think that's why many students find it easier. I'm just going to memorize it. I could have done that. I could have just memorized it and moved on. And it's in the short term, it's easier to do that. Um, but I think in the long term, I just don't think you retain as much. And you certainly can't apply it as well. Absolutely. You know, and you hit on a lot of great things there. And especially, you know, and sticking to math, really. And, and the only reason that I'll stick to math too as well is because these last, what is it, seven years I've been working with an amazing math specialist for elementary. And a lot of what you're saying, you know, I, I know we're talking more of the higher level math, but even at the elementary, he follows a very similar concept. Like you're saying, you know, it's really just following the standards, but making things easy enough that it builds off of one concept, like you mentioned. And, and many times I think that, you know, with, as teachers and even myself, when I first started teaching math, I taught the way that I learned. And so I learned with the standard algorithm and just say, Hey, this is the way that we're going to do it. Why Mr. Mendoza? Uh, because that's just the way that we're going to do it. And again, many of the, many of the, the ways that I taught it was like you mentioned, memorizing, learn what foil means. Uh, let's do, uh, what is it? The butterfly method, uh, you know, crisscross this and do this and so on. So it was just a lot of mnemonic, mnemonic devices, a lot of, of those things. And so the students were just simply memorized. But you're absolutely right on, on that one point that you hit that I think it's so important that it's okay to memorize things. But if you don't really take them and go in deeper and learn them, it really, you know, like you said, it, there's, it's, it's to me, I, I don't find it just the memorization being valuable. Like I need to know because you never know what that's going to build up on and you're going to continue to grow and then you're just having to relearn something. So I absolutely agree. And unfortunately, uh, Todd, I'm going to let you know that there's probably a lot of that memorization that is happening now in education due to the standardized testing, um, the way that, you know, knowledge is measured. It's almost like the pressure is there and the, the teachers are like, no, 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 I just need you to memorize this just to get you through the test. Student gets through the test, but they have no concept of what um, the, the, con the learning that needs to take place needs to be. And when they go from one year to the next, there's a gap. And then there's another gap because, again, like you mentioned, one thing builds off of another. And again, that's something that we're seeing. So as I, I know you and I, very different standardized tests and maybe even in different in different states. But now I know that um, you have uh, some kiddos that were, are in school or currently in school. And what has that experience been like when they come home saying, 
mom, dad, we have a standardized or we have the star test or we have the whatever test, depending on the state. What's that level of anxiety like for at or that you have observed with your um, daughters? Yeah, so we have we have four older children that are that are all out doing well. Uh, we have our our fourteen year old who's at home, and you know, we've been we've been very fortunate. She um, and the other students, uh, other other children, been very self motivated. Uh, we any pressure that they feel is is pressure they put on themselves, not pressure that that we put on them. I haven't heard my my daughter mention standardized test. She goes to a private Christian school. I'm not sure if they take it. So maybe that's the difference, but I, I have to tell you that I, I don't envy the job teachers face trying to prepare all the students for those standardized tests. I just, I don't see the value in having students memorize a bunch of stuff. I mean, I don't want to trivialize it. There's certainly importance in having a rich knowledge base of facts to draw upon, but I think it, it over, coming back to what I said you know, earlier, I think it overemphasizes the incidental at the expense of the fundamental, because if you're teaching constantly to the test, then you're not, you're not focused on those fundamentals and the depth of learning that I was talking about, because I, I would imagine, and again, not being an educator, I'm just hy hypothesizing here, but I would imagine you just don't have time to do that, especially when you have, what, 25 or 30 students in a, in a classroom, all at different levels with different aptitudes and you're trying to get them all to the same place. That's all I can say that it must be incredibly, incredibly frustrating. The, the other comment I'll make, and you touched on it. Um, the reason I think that understanding the fundamentals is so important, particularly in STEM related fields is because in those fields, knowledge is cumulative in a way that it probably isn't in, isn't in other disciplines. You know, for example, you, you are not going to do well in pre-calculus if you did not understand algebra. You're not going to do well in algebra if you never understood fractions, right? In fact, I, I see this all the time. I've, I've done my share of tutoring uh, when I was at university and, and a little bit later in my life, I tutored math. And I would see it all the time that a student would miss a problem, say it was an algebra one problem, not because they messed up the algebra, it's because they didn't add the fractions right. Right? And I think, you know, math and particularly STEM-related fields build on their way. You have to be able to retain that knowledge. And there's just no way to retain it if you're memorizing hundreds and hundreds of formulas. I mean, I, I, I couldn't do it. You know, I think there's, there's it's a little bit less forgiving in other subjects. You know, I think you have a, a pretty good shot at doing well in world history, even if you didn't pick up much of what you learned in U.S. history. But you almost get a fresh start. I and mean, I think the context of U.S. history would, would probably help you. But it's not detrimental in the way that not understanding fractions will impede you, your ability to do well in algebra. That's right. And, and you know, and that's something that's interesting, too. And we'll kind of go along with that. Uh, also, the way this conversation is going, because you're absolutely right. As far as the experience that I've seen, um, you know, in K-12, you know, in the public sector, very different than, yeah, in, in the private school setting where they, do, you know, some uh, private schools, they don't do the star testing and things of that sort, which I find that it's great. There's less pressure on the student, less pressure on the teacher. You're actually teaching, you're, you're going through the curriculum. Uh, one thing that I have observed, although here, just to let you know, but come January, January to May, that's what they call star testing season. 
And it's almost like everything shuts down and you're just in test mode from January to May. You're go, 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 star review, star review. Students are just getting bombarded, cognitive overload like crazy. Students getting burnt out because they're seeing the same type of problems, going through the same skills, and it's just drill, drill, drill. And there really isn't any addition in, or any additional supports or just additional ways of doing this, uh, you know, I guess multimodal ways of presenting the subject matter, which is interesting because one thing that you mentioned, which you are correct, you've got, you know, 25 to 27, possibly 32 students in a class who all learn differently, yet the test is standardized, but they're all multimodal learners, which I still find it very difficult to understand. I, I, I don't know where they come up with this. And I wish that they would definitely either just get rid of the test or just change it to better suits all of our students. Because really what I feel that it measures is the level of support that students have at home. Uh, Maybe a reflection of that. And I'll just use this as an example. For example, some of our Southside schools in our district, uh, our content specialists really don't worry about too much, even though there might be a data point assessment, which is a small little kind of unit summative uh, test that they would take after a couple of chapters. Uh, Although there may be, you know, some kind of red flags like, oh, caution here on this particular concept or here. They're like, nah, it's okay. Like we know that they're going to be fine because they have that support from the community. Like parents that say, hey, I'm going to take you to a tutorial service. I'm going to hire a tutor. I'm going to go do this or do that. And they're going to make it happen. But the real focus is on the north side schools where there isn't that level of support or, you know, support from parents that can afford to take their child to tutorial services and so on. So sometimes I feel like these tests, what they really do is they just really measure just the socioeconomic uh, impact within our community. And also, of course, just create more of a gap within not only our district, but really districts everywhere. And that's something that I feel that we're kind of seeing um, in that sense where, you know, the numbers don't lie and it's just getting, you know, a little bit more and more, uh, I guess, ridiculous in that sense, sort of because of funding and things of that sort. So again, I'm glad that, you know, you don't have to experience that. And you're absolutely right. It's something that uh, many people won't envy the the things that they have to do because it, it's that pressure that is on there. Uh, but again, because of that, going back to what you're saying, the students do really miss out on so much. It's just really becomes just test prep from third through ninth grade when they take their last test. And then after that, it's like AC, ACT and SAT and so on. And it's just tests everywhere the whole time. And so a lot of times we're missing out on those, that creative component, the being able to, I guess, learn in the way that, again, makes them feel comfortable. Uh, I know I, when I was in the classroom, one of the things that I did was offer, uh, you know, multiple ways of students sharing that mastery of content in a way that they feel most comfortable with. And again, even though it was start, start testing time, I still went about my business and, and everything was fine. Nothing broke. The students all passed. And as a matter of fact, they did very well in the way that we were going through our curriculum, but still embedding some tech, embedding some, you know, hands-on, doing a lot of those things and really diving in deep to those concepts. And I think that we're missing out on a lot of that. So 
But another thing that I wanted to touch on is how this leads, and you mentioned into the STEM-related fields, and of course, something like engineering, something like mathematics, and so on. So in your experience, Todd, now that you are, you know, I guess at the top of, you know, your company at the top of your game, from your experience, from the top looking down, what have you seen throughout, you know, your years in industry as far as the level of, I guess, the level of workers coming in or the preparation coming in from university? Has there been a significant difference in the years that you've been you know, in, in a high role. And can you tell us a little bit about what you may be seeing? Yeah, sure. I, I don't think that I've, I've seen a difference in the, the quality of education that they're getting. Certainly there's a difference in emphasis and they're certainly better equipped to use technology, for example. And I'll, I'll give you just as an example, one of the tools that's widely used in engineering are 3d modeling programs to, you actually design now using 3d software. You don't design you know, the way I learned it, you know, with a T-square and using pencil and paper, you design on a computer and you can do it three-dimensionally. And then you can take those three-dimensional models and you can actually send them to a 3D printer or you can send them to a, a, a machine shop so they can actually machine what you're, you're working on. So the ability to be able to use those tools straight out of school, I never learned how to use them because by the time they were, they were a thing, I was past that point in my career where I would, I would need to do it. So I always had to lean on some of the younger people to do it for me. And fortunately I worked with some very, very talented engineers, uh, that were able to, to take care of that work and they did exceptional jobs. I, so I wouldn't say there's a difference in, in quality of education. I would say there's a difference, obviously more emphasis towards the tools that have become available, but it, let me jump back to something. I just want to make sure I heard you right. You said testing January through May. That's half the school year. Well, that's I mean, well. We we call it test prep season. I know the the yeah. school starts. Yes, uh, testing doesn't officially start till like about either late March or early April, and it goes on close to a month, just depending on you know the way that schools uh, divide up the testing schedule. Because sometimes yeah. there's schools they they don't they they got tired of doing the back to back to back tests because. It was too much for the kids. So then they'll say, okay, one week we're going to do this test. The next week we're going to do another test. And then the next week, and I just feel like, oh my gosh, you're just extending the process. Students getting burned out, Saturday tutorings. So it, we call it star testing season. But again, it, yeah. that's the main focus from January to May. Well, what I was thinking was, you mentioned a couple things in, the, in your previous answer that really resonated with me. So one was just you know, the length of that test season and, and the type of conversations that I think students are probably missing out on. There were, I think one of the things that helped me as a student is I had a, a just phenomenal math teacher for three years in high school. His name was Gene Saxton. He, he is, I credit him today, you know, for a lot of the success that I've had in my life because he he taught me how to think analytically, critically, and deeply. And he did it by allowing conversations to go off in weird directions in class. And what, what occurs to me is, you know, when you're in this test prep mode, you're going to lose those conversations. I, I mean, to this day, it's been 35 years since I was in ninth grade, probably, or something like that. 
And I still remember this conversation we had in freshman geometry, where we were talking about parallel lines and we were talking about, you know, how parallel lines don't intersect and you can calculate if lines are not parallel, you can calculate how far away they're going to intersect based upon the angle between them. And we started having this discussion about what happens as the angle gets smaller and smaller. And that's how we got on this discussion was the angle goes to zero, the distance goes to infinity. And, and this, this, it went on all class. We talked about this whole thing because you know, we were freshmen. Nobody knew anything about limits. Nobody knew anything about infinity. But we touched on all of that, which is 12th grade mathematics. And he just let the discussion go and kind of led us through us by asking the right questions. And I think that's the magic that I found that teachers have, that good teachers have, is they, they don't give the student the answer. They will give them incremental questions to get them to the answer so that they're the ones that have to think through it because that's how they learn. They have to do the work. It's like, it's like going to the gym. You can't have someone go to the gym and lift the weights for you right? You, the students have to do the work and the teacher's job is to, okay, how do I get this student incrementally by asking the right question? You know, some students, you can probably make bigger leaps than others. Other students may be a little more help is okay. Couldn't make that leap. Let me make a smaller leap. And let's ask this question to get them a little closer to the answer and then incrementally get the student there. In fact, I had one class in, in college. Uh, the first time I tried to get my master's degree in mathematics, it was taught during uh, using the Socratic method. The professor never gave an answer the whole semester. We started off with the fundamental axioms and the homework assignment was, okay, now that you know those, prove these six things. And then the next, during the next class, he would have students who were able to do it, come up to the board and write down the proofs. And we would go through that. And then he would say, okay, now you've built this new set of knowledge. Now prove these six things. And from there, we... All through the semester, we basically got through an entire class and real analysis by doing all the proofs ourselves. And, and I think that's, that's how you learn it. Just to, and again, that's just what resonated with me when you, you talked about star testing season. I'm saying you, you're not, you don't have time for those type of conversations. The other thing that you mentioned, I think, is, is so important. You talked about parents and the role that parents play. And I think... Parents play, I know in my life, you know, parents, my, my mother in particular, because, you know, she was at home when I was a young child, played a key role in, in just my intellectual curiosity, if nothing else. I mean, yeah, she taught me how to read and, and add and subtract. And I think I was even learning to multiply before I went to kindergarten, but it was more that she encouraged the curiosity and having that at home and having someone that will do that, I think particularly early in childhood is of incredible benefit. Yeah, no, I agree. There's a couple of things there that I wanted to to kind of glean from that you answered and um, that I think were great. You know, one of the things, the experience that you had with your teacher in high school is something that is wonderful and being able to go in deep and you, in ninth grade and you were doing 12th grade, you know, like mathematics just through those conversations and really understanding those concepts. And that is very similar to, I mean, being, even I was a fifth grade teacher, but even as a fifth grade teacher, being able to do that with my students, it, it's not impossible, but it's just really finding a way to do it in that is going to make sense. Obviously, you want to make sure that all your students are all on the same page. And, but the way that I did it was in a very similar fashion. It was like, hey, 
I'm going to introduce you to the concepts. But then after this, now you're on your own. You're going to dive in deep and I want a presentation. Uh, you can either create a graphic, you can create a video, you can create this. You're going to work as a team, team leaders and so on. So everything was really on the students. So it was great to see the students really taking that ownership and we would have those conversations. Now, what that does too for teachers is that it kind of takes the pressure off a little bit and to where you don't have to be the subject matter expert in all of those things that you're you're learning together and you're learning as a community. You still know the concepts, but now you're taking it into that different direction where in those conversations, you're hitting on so many multiple learning concepts that at the end, it's like you've pretty much hit maybe on a semester's worth of work within one lesson altogether. And I find that very valuable. So that was what was very reminiscent there of what you mentioned about Mr. Sexton on that. The other thing that I wanted to share on that was uh, it's, I think it's just that not that teachers can't do it either, but it's just that pressure, Todd, honestly, it's just the the pressure that they feel because it's easier, like you mentioned, to just give the student the answer and just move on and continue because as a teacher, you feel like, okay, well, I covered everything. Yeah, you covered everything, but did the student understand everything? And so those are some of the consequences that, that, have, that I have seen, I guess, in that sense of that teaching style where I just got to move and got to go. So here, let me just give you the answer instead of having that discourse and having those discussions, which I find are very important. And last week, uh, you know, I had four shows last week. And the common theme was the ability to have conversations in class, not teacher-led conversations, but student-led conversations and seeing that effect. And like you mentioned, even now, you know, 30-some-odd years later, those conversations have affected you in a positive way now that you have a master's degree in mathematics and have helped, uh, you know, helped you along the way. And not just in your master's, but really just that thinking process of, working your way up into your current role and your current position. I'm sure that a lot of that had to do with that. And I think that's so important and we're not doing enough of it, I believe, in class or in school. So I, now I kind of wanted to change it up a little bit here talking about, obviously we're talking about education and of course in your current role, uh, it wouldn't be a show called Maya Tech Life if we didn't talk a little bit about technology. So uh, Todd, as you know, at 1130, you know, or November 30th, it'll be a year since we heard about ChatGPT. And we know that a lot has changed since. And I'm sure that that's been a conversation that has been, you know, on everybody's mind for a long time and just seeing how it is being used. Now, I can only focus on the education side of it, but I just wanted to ask you in your experience and in your current role. And obviously, like you mentioned, the the not necessarily the quality of work, but the emphasis that has been put on maybe certain tech and things of that sort. How are you seeing AI play out within your industry? So we use it, I've used it a few times for my work, uh, mostly for what I would call semi-clerical tasks, writing a job description. And it, it does a reasonable job. If I say, give me a job description for a entry-level R&D engineer in the medical device industry, it gives me something that I would consider about 85% accurate. 
And it gives me a good starting point so I don't have to start from scratch. And I think, you know, from that standpoint, it's a useful, it's a useful tool. The other place that I've seen, and this is not my area of expertise, I've only seen it, you know, in an ancillary way is graphic design. Um, I know that it's, it's used quite a bit in graphic design and creating graphics much more quickly than you could otherwise, otherwise do it by hand. Excellent. Now, do, are you seeing any, you know, within the industry, maybe certain companies that are like really taking off with it a little bit more? Um, and then if, if so, you know, is that something that you see is going to come more into this space if it hasn't already? I've read some of the the buzz that you see on on LinkedIn about AI diagnosis acts accuracy versus doctor accuracy, for example. And I think it'll be a long time before we're ready to turn over diagnosing illnesses to chat GPT. I am by no means an expert in, in AI, in AI, but I, I played with it enough to know that I would never rely on anything without checking it myself. And I can tell you from an engineering standpoint, it, it does some fairly impressive things writing prose. Um, in fact, I, once I asked it to write something which I thought was fairly obtuse and it did a reasonable job. And I don't, I would like to understand more about exactly how it does that and how the, the algorithms work to pull together different concepts in the way that it did. But I can tell you that on engineering, technical STEM related matters, I have found that to be completely useless. Um, I, I, in fact, I gave it one of my daughter's science homework problems and it loved it. Just completely, even after I explained to it why it was wrong, it loved it. it it's, there's something there that is just, and maybe that's not what it's designed for, right? You have to use every tool for what it's intended to do. But I'm, I'm sure there will be a time where it will find more and more uses. My frustration with it is it, we're calling it AI and I, I don't think it's intelligent. I, mean, I guess it depends on what do you define as intelligence is, right? What's the definition? And then we can have that argument about whether it is or not. But either way, I think it's been oversold as this human-like intelligence that's going to come take over the world. I, I just don't see that. But I think you touched on something earlier, and I think it was, it was a nice bridge into AI. You've got different students with different learning modes at different points in their knowledge base. You have one teacher with 25 to 32 students. You know, is there a role AI can play there to help you know, a student that is a little behind or maybe even a student that's ahead and needs some additional challenges, right? So the teacher doesn't have time to go off with one student. Can AI fill those gaps? Can AI identify you know, a student who, for example, you know, missed a, an algebra problem because they didn't get their fractions right? Could it identify it's a fractions problem? Let me go back and give this person some, some work on fractions and then get them caught up and then they can rejoin the class. Would that be a place that, that AI could be useful? I think I you know, don't see it as much different than, than Khan Academy in that respect. You know, I use Khan Academy all the time it, for my personal growth. I, I love to go on Khan Academy and learn about something that, that I don't know anything about, like biology or chemistry. I might know a little bit, but not nothing, nothing to mention. And uh, I think that's a place where, where Khan Academy or, or a system like that, that can fill some gaps would be very, very useful. Absolutely. You know, I, one of the things that I wanted to add, Todd, is, and I'm going to reference a TikTok video that I saw of a gentleman who I follow, who's a software developer. And 
he was talking about be, uh, because he had seen a video of somebody addressing ChatGPT saying, okay, when you use ChatGPT, I always say, good morning, ChatGPT. How are you? And because they wanted to do something uh, to say like, you know, they, to give you a better output, you, it's like you're almost talking to somebody else in that sort of way um, and very being very polite as you would anybody. It's like, hey, can you help me uh, address this issue and so on and so forth. And the gentleman said, what are we doing? Like, this is just a fancy linear equation that gives you an output. There shouldn't be any reason why I have to be polite to it and say, hi, how are you this morning? It should just work because it's a linear equation. So I just wanted to throw that in there because it, it's something that's math related. But I think going back to what you were saying, this isn't really anything new as far as, you know, of course, the term AI now has just blown up. But even currently in our district, we have a math program that helps give a little diagnostic test and it finds where the students' weak points are. And it'll go ahead and try and close that gap. And I'll give you an example. There was a ninth grade teacher that we just adopted the platform last year. And the ninth grade teacher was just like, this is broken. This doesn't work. This is terrible. I don't think that this platform is good at all whatsoever. And I was like, okay, can, can you tell me what it is that you're seeing? What's happening? He's like, well, Mr. Mendoza, I have a student that's a ninth grade algebra, but they keep getting fourth grade measurement skills. And I said, look, this shouldn't surprise you just because the student is at ninth grade does not mean that they've mastered every concept from K to eighth grade. So what it did is it's actually because of the diagnostic test that they took, which was 20 questions just randomly. It said, you still need some help and support in this area. It still kept them at level, but it was giving them some of that additional support. Like you mentioned, multiple levels in one place. The platform already does that. But I think it's the hype of now because we never saw that algorithm and we never saw that uh, the diagnostic and the way it works. Now, AI is like right up in our face. And now we're like, oh, my gosh, like this is going to change things and this is going to do things differently. And yes, it can. But we also need to be very cautious with it. And I'm one of those that I will not put anything out or share any any tools out. Because number one, my name's behind it and I want to make sure that it's going to be something where I feel, if I feel safe enough to use it and safe enough for my teachers to use it, then I'll go ahead and share it. But I'm always very reserved because I'm always, you know, thinking data first, privacy first, information first. And then, of course, I'll think of the outcome and, you know, what it is that we can use it for. So I think that there is those those two sides and I'm just trying to reconcile both worlds. But like I said, it's it's something that is definitely going to be here. And it's now that we've seen it and see the power can definitely be very beneficial for our schools if used the right way. What I'm seeing, and I'll ask you right now in just a second too, uh, of what if your you know daughters have experienced any of this yet or have used it for any of their schoolwork, but a couple of the things that I'm seeing is there's a lot of companies that are out there that really what they are is just a chat GPT wrapper. And really, it's just doing the same thing and giving you the same kind of output that chat GPT is doing because they don't have specific data that is trained. And so that's why I'm very cautious that if you're if you're not showing me anything that is Texas aligned or standards aligned to meet the needs of our district or our region or our state, 
I'm I'm not going to be like jumping on board and being like, yes, I need to use this, even though it's not standards aligned, because I'm still going to have to do double the work. You know, like you mentioned, it's a good starting point where it can get you a nice lesson, maybe 85% of the way, but you're still going to have to put in some work to edit it and tweak it and to make sure that it's standards aligned. So I want to ask you, Todd, like what has been your daughter's experience you know, has she had the opportunity to use it in school or just experiment with it? What is it that you might be seeing? Uh, to my knowledge that uh, they haven't taught it and she hasn't been using it. I think, you know, with, with OpenAI, I can see it being very useful as a teacher's tool, a teacher's aid. I think it's detrimental to a student's education if, if they use it. I, now, let me, let me go back to when I was in grade school, that's when pocket calculators were becoming a thing, right? And there was the big debate, when should students get to use calculators? And the answer that, that our school system settled on, and I think most school systems across the country settled on, was you can use a calculator when you've mastered everything it can do, right? Because then at that point, it's just tedious work. There's no sense in having someone in ninth grade multiply two three-digit numbers together. It's just tedious work that is preventing them from spending that time learning something more meaningful. So I think that's, that's the right approach. Now the question is, how do you apply that to something that's much more powerful? How do you say, okay, students can use it when they've mastered everything that it can do? Because it can do a lot, particularly when it comes to writing. And I, I know this is you know, a big issue, particularly in, in subjects that require a lot of writing. You know, now they have AI detectors to try and determine did a student use AI to write their essay? You know, I think, I think we both know that, you know, the student is really only shortchanging themselves, you know, when they do that, because they're the ones that are going to suffer from it. I mean, writing, writing is distilled thought, right? So if you're, if you're not doing the writing, you're not doing the thinking. And if you're not doing the thinking, you're not learning. Right. You may get an A on the class and you get through the class and then you graduate, but you, you haven't learned anything. Now, how do you prevent students from using it? Hey, I don't know that you can. I think there's, there's always going to be some percentage of students, just as some percentage of any group that will look for a shortcut, right? And I don't know that you can necessarily prevent it. I don't think the answer is, well, since we can't prevent it, let's allow it. Right? I don't think that's a good rationale for why you, you allow something. I think you stand by the rules. Um, and that would be, I would be very, very hesitant until I saw data that led me to believe otherwise to allow students to use it, particularly to do writing assignments. Now, I think there's certainly, as I mentioned, uses for it in the industry when you're doing something trivial, like give me a job description for this, then I can edit, or give me a two-way non-disclosure agreement. I could you know, that would be, I think, perfectly useful examples of it. But, you know, the whole point of education is to do the thinking and learning yourself. Right. And, and the difference between a calculator and open AI is you can already do everything a calculator can do. You cannot do everything open AI can do. Right. So by do, letting it do it for you, you're, you're, the students are starting to change themselves. So I, I would love to say in an ideal world, limit it to use as a teacher's aid to help them, particularly to address students that have gaps. You know, like you said, it, it's not uncommon for somebody to have a gap in fourth grade. Maybe that's the week they had chicken pox. They missed that assignment, right? I mean, it happens. 
you know, or maybe they were just having a, a bad month at home or who knows. And you could say, okay, chat GPT can go fill this gap for me. Or maybe it's just cons academy, whatever, but they can go fill that gap and the student can keep the rest of the class on track. And then the student can rejoin when they're, they're caught up. Excellent. I, I don't know. There's an easy answer to it. I, I don't think there is. Yeah, no. And I don't think there is either. It just all depends. You know, like I mentioned, uh, it's it's really up at the discretion of the teacher too as well. Now, I know that, for example, my school district, they shut it off completely for all students. So students do not have access at school with school devices. Obviously, you know, we know students have cell phones, so they can go ahead and access that and so on. Uh, one of the things is even our, our writing teachers, they, we, they don't use any of the uh, AI detectors at all whatsoever because, again, they just don't feel that they're going to be catching everything. And also just because of the news where even the AI detectors are not perfect as well either. So what they've just really done is just a, we're standardizing just writing in class only. Um, this is the way that we're going to do it. So I was like, great, you know, and obviously you do what you can with what you have. And so obviously they just say, you know, we're just going to do it here in class and they've been doing okay. There hasn't been any uh, uproar of, hey, you know, there, there's a lot of plagiarism and so on because now they've got that under control. It is open for teachers, which is great. Like I meant, like you mentioned too, and I agree with where this could actually be that teacher co-pilot to help assist. And mainly what I like to share the, the excuse me, the use case I like to share is when the gaps that you mentioned, but also with emergent bilinguals, you know, one of the things that I have found is that OpenAI is actually really good at translating the English into Spanish. Now, I don't know any other languages, so I can't compare it to others, but I know at least in our demographic area that I know you're familiar with, a lot of it would be, you know, a lot of students coming in with Spanish and it does a great job at translating that. One of the other use cases is also with parent communication, you know, being able to translate something into Spanish and explain, you know, maybe something difficult or a difficult concept, not necessarily math related, but maybe either a meeting or something where it would be like a, just a little uh, like scholarship applications. And you have parents at home that do not speak English, but it can translate and it can kind of give the main points and that way they get the information. So those are some of the great use cases that I've seen and uh, being how it chat GPT or, you know, any kind of AI can be used. But again, like you said, you know, we don't know how it's, you know, where this can lead, where it can go. But hopefully, like I said, you know, we need to be very cautious. And I'm always very cautious, more of the data aspect of it and, you know, protecting our students' identity, protecting our teachers, protecting any kind of information that is out there. Because in the end, I mean, we don't know where that may be going. And although somebody says, well, we have an enterprise version where all your da data is kept safe. We all know that there is nothing 100% safe out there. So it's just having and be very cautious of that too. So, but yeah, anyway, so. You, yeah, you mentioned something that I thought that was interesting. And that was actually my first kind of knee-jerk reaction to the whole writing thing. And it sounds like this is something that some of the teachers at your system I would embraced as, well, we'll just do in-class essays then. That way, you know, you know, everybody's writing their own stuff. You know, the problem with that is, is there, there is value to longer essays that require more thought than you can do in class. I remember in high school writing, I think my senior thesis was 60 pages long, right? So 
you know, you obviously can't do that in class. You know, plus I was reading books and going to libraries. I mean, it was a, it was a research project. And, and this may be one of the cases where, where, you know, there's going to be some downsides to a tool this capable because, yeah, you're just not going to be able to know whether is this the student's work or is it AI's work. And, you know, again, the student is really shortchanging themselves, but at the same time, the teachers are trying to keep everything fair because the students that, you know, I've certainly heard about this from my daughter is, you know, this person is cheating and I'm not, and they got a higher grade than I did. And, you know, I can tell her all I want. doesn't matter. Don't worry about that. They're just cheating themselves. doesn't help her that day. Right. And I know teachers, I'm sure, you know, hear about that and other students are using it. Why can't I use it? Or why don't you do something about it? And it's, it's quite a quagmire. I, I don't know quite what, again, what the answer is going to be to, to make it work. Probably some combination of a lot of things. Absolutely. Well, definitely a lot to think about. And so, Patad, it's been great, you know, having you here. Thank you so much for just a great conversation and just sharing your journey and just really taking in a lot. Like, you know, still reflecting from that first portion of the show, you know, learn less, you know, but really go in deep. And that's something that I'm really going to have to reflect on. So I really appreciate you sharing that and just in the way that the conversation really flowed. And just thank you for your insights and uh, just sharing what it is that you're seeing from your viewpoint. And again, it's been a pleasure reconnecting with you again and just to be able to have this great conversation. And, uh, you know, so thank you so much for that and uh, appreciate what you're doing. And thank you again, you know, for connecting. And so for all our audience members, thank you also for listening. Thank you so much for all of your support. Please make sure you visit our website at myedtech.life myedtech.life where you can check out this amazing episode and the other 200 plus episodes for uh, with a lot of educators teachers entrepreneurs founders and and there's going to be a little bit of everything for everybody guys so i promise you that you can take some knowledge nuggets from those and sprinkle them onto what you are already doing great so as always thank you so much please make sure that you're following us on all socials if you haven't yet at myedtech.life and if you haven't jump over to our youtube channel and give us a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel we definitely appreciate that and my friends until next time don't forget stay techie